but I went into medicine with the intention of doing good. I've not yet met a doctor who didn't think the same. So if that is the case, you know, what is the block for people taking on lifestyle medicine as mainstream, something that we should all do? Hello and welcome to Little Slice in Time with me, Linda, the host of Whitlam's What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics that are crucial to health and well-being, but usually not taught, glossed over or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. In today's episode, I chat to Dr. Rob Lawson, co-founder and chairman of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, as well as the president of the European Lifestyle Medicine Council. We talk about what lifestyle medicine is, how it applies to the pandemic and beyond, and so much more. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please remember to subscribe and also follow me at Willems on social media and check out the description for the link to the show notes. Hello, Linda. So thank you very much for making contact with me. I am Dr. Rob Lawson, now a former general practitioner, but I still do a little bit of uh, patient contact uh, in the NHS in the UK. Uh, I've run a local charity and I've set up something called the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And uh, delighted that uh, you are a member of it, uh, of us, and we're all part of one great big family. So that, that's, that's who I am. That's great. Thank you. Um, so hopefully most people that are listening are familiar with the concept of lifestyle medicine, but for those that aren't and think it's maybe a new thing, um, I'm assuming that you have had to do this a couple of times. So do you have a good way to summarizing lifestyle medicine in a bit of a nutshell? Uh, you know, the, 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 the actual definition that so we've simply we've just simply put up on the European Lifestyle Medicine Council website, which uh, uh, I'm also president of, uh, I'll just read it out to you because I got it in front of me and then I'll, I'll explain it in, in a different terms. But so it's the application of environmental, behavioral, medical and motivational principles to the management, including self-care and self-management of lifestyle related health problems in a clinical and or public health setting. So that's uh, that's a catch all sort of lifestyle medicine definition that uh, I kind of live by. There, mm-hmm. there are a few around, naturally, uh, but the one that uh, I, I use quite a bit, really, just for people to get a very easy understanding of it, and it's a, it's a, it's a mental picture. So the picture is of a tap which is dripping water into a basin, and uh, there's no way out for the water. The water collects in the basin, the basin fills up, and then, of course, the water spills over the edges. It makes a mess on the floor. So people come around with mops, and mop up the west and uh, nobody turns the tap off so that's really sort of how the the health service works at the moment we're all going around mopping up everything uh, you know off the floor but nobody's remembering to turn the tap off and lifestyle medicine is really about turning the tap off and uh, trying to stop stuff upstream which is uh, resulting in uh, all our ills at the moment so i hope that kind of sets it's a bit hackneyed i know but i hope uh, people understand that a bit better than the first definition that i read out no absolutely i think that's such a great way of thinking about it that at the moment we're currently working from a reactive type of approach really fixing problems that are already there as opposed to trying to prevent them from arising great and yes what are some of the components that help you turn the tap off? 
Well, the components of lifestyle medicine are, are fourfold, uh, really, um, just for rule of thumb. Uh, the, the first of all, we have to, to have the science, don't we? Um, the knowledge. And uh, you know, what, mm -hmm. what is it that actually are the, the determinants of chronic disease? And, and ultimately, that's what we're dealing with. Um, and uh, the knowledge uh, largely is based around, well, what's, what's driving uh, the, the, the illness in our uh, society? And they say that a lot of it, of course, is preventable. I mean, 80% of it, perhaps, of chronic disease is probably preventable. And a significant amount is mm -hmm. reversible. Uh, so just as there is with acute diseases, uh, infectious diseases, there is a, a cause of infectious diseases. We know that. It's called a germ. So the germ theory was born uh, an awful long time ago. Um, and the per first person to look down a, a microscope, in fact, was uh, Lee Wan Hook, who, who looked down and, and uh, saw things wriggling and thought, that's what it is. That's the problem of our infectious mm -hmm. diseases. But nobody in the medical world believed him for 170 years. Mm. So eventually the germ theory was born. And we know now that that was a driver of infectious diseases. So what is a driver of these chronic diseases that have arrived in the 21st century uh, over a period of time? And uh, the driver there is metabolic inflammation. And uh, Hotel Michelegel in, in, uh, in the States first came up with this uh, and and has shown really a very strong link between this process called metabolic inflammation uh, and the, the, the uh, development of uh, chronic disease. So that, that's, having an understanding of that is hugely important because then it goes on to explain why all the determinants are there and, and, and you know, what we can do about it. And it's, it's not just the obvious things. So that, that's one of the components, the knowledge and the science. The next thing is the, the art. And, uh, and the skills that you bring to the, your lifestyle medicine environment. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's all, all about uh, changing our unhealthy lifestyle environments. It's, it's about um, coaching. It's about behavioral change. Behavioral change ultimately uh, is, I think, really, the, the psych psychology is the sort of surgery of, of lifestyle medicine. And behavioral change is key. So the, the skills that you need there are related to that. And through counselling uh, and uh, coaxing, as I call coaxing and nudging, or coaching, coaxing mm -hmm. and nudging. Uh, prescribing, you'll know all about that. Mm -hmm. But how about de-prescribing? Uh, who talks about that? Are you being taught? Well, anyway, that, that is an important aspect of the skill of lifetime medicine. The third component are the tools that we use, the, the, what tests or devices or equipment can be used to assist the changes towards a healthy lifestyle and our environment. And, that largely is, is beginning to look around the area of digital health, actually, and telemetry and ambulatory monitoring and implantable devices and so on. But uh, I talk about what's called the string test. As a, you know, the string is my aid. The string test is essentially standing up against a wall with a, a long piece of string and uh, you're pulling it out to the, your height, uh, cutting it, and then bringing both ed cut edges together. Now that's basically halved it. So you then put it around your waist. And if the two uh, ends don't meet, then you've most likely uh, got increased risk of metabolic disease and uh, all the stuff that comes with that. So it's a very, very simple test. Lifestyle medicine is not complicated. And we don't want a lot of um, uh, tests that we don't need. 
you know, we don't want uh, a lot of blood investigations. We don't want x-rays, you know. We, we don't really want any of that. We want to keep it simple. And that, that's not to say we don't need it. And then the fourth element is procedures or actions. You know, what sequence of steps uh, to be taken to establish a course of action to improve unhealthy lifestyles? What the, this is a key, really, of self-management, mm -hmm. isn't it? And uh, how do people self-care, self-manage? And uh, one of the, the procedures or actions that uh, we very much espouse is something called group consultations. And, uh, you know, most uh, uh, medics are taught in a one-to-one -one, uh, environment. Yeah. You, know, the, the, you, you consult with your patient, it's you and your patient. Mm -hmm. um, but there are 300 white papers showing that if you actually consult in groups, it's much more effective. Uh, and so group consultations is a very, very good way of getting lifetime medicine principles to a large number of people very simply. And it, we know it works. So th that's how, those are the various components of lifestyle mm -hmm. medicine. So that's probably an awful lot longer than you wanted me to go <laughs> no, on. that's fine. Anyway, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, that's where it is. Great. And um, yeah, in this introductory talk that you had for the Lifestyle Medicine Society, you mentioned an acronym, NASTY Malodors, which I thought quite nicely summed up oh, the yes. um, chronic disease determinants. The N and the A stand for, I think, nutrition and activity, which, you know, diet and exercise is probably what most people think it's all about. But then, of course, there are so many other aspects to it as well. Um, so some of those are, for example, environment, um, relationships, alienation and social inequality. And in light of the pandemic, hopefully, I think that people have maybe started thinking a bit more about other things than just you know diet and exercise as it has shown light on some inequalities in the ways that people are affected um you know showed by government reports and you know highlighted by the black lives matter movement as well in terms of racial inequality um, and you wrote a blog as well for the british society of lifestyle medicine recently titled covid19 is not a lifestyle disease but lifestyle medicine is part of the solution and I was just wondering if you wanted to yes. talk a little bit about what prompted your writing it. And um, I'll link it so people can read it later as well, but what some of your main points uh, in mm. it are. Yeah, I, I'm kind of slightly frustrated, I suppose, by uh, my own profession or some people in them, mm -hmm. uh, that they don't really get what lifestyle medicine is. Um, and this is a good example, I think, that... Uh, the Royal College of GPs put on a, a meeting uh, and it was called uh, COVID-19 uh, Lifestyle Disease. Mm. And, and clearly, um, it, it really isn't that, um, but the, there are elements that uh, contribute towards morbidity as a consequence uh, of lifestyle factors. Uh, so people with risk, if you like, who are more likely to develop COVID or complications from COVID uh, would have been, and, and, would, and we know, uh, for example, are overweight or obese. And we know that that re uh, reduces uh, um, the, the risk, the, the possibility of, of having a happy outcome. Yeah. So th there is a link, but to say that it is just, you know, COVID-19 was a lifestyle disease was a mistake, in my view, mm. uh, in spite of the fact of the content of that meeting being very, very well received by everybody who participated, the Royal College came under pressure uh, from uh, certain people in the medical world to withdraw it. 
um, because of the, 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 the link, if you like, the implication that some people take from the word lifestyle. And uh, they, the implication they take is that it's judgmental, that we're judging mm -hmm. people uh, on the basis of their lifestyle. And that the people who are uh, de deprived or in low socioeconomic status uh, aren't in the so-called privileged position to be able to change their lifestyles as if they don't have any choice, or they, if they did, they can't take it. And uh, I personally find that patronizing. I think that uh, I can say that as a GP of many, many years, uh, behavioral change is possible. You cannot take away agency, nor should we even, age, everybody has the potential to change. Uh, and I've seen it time and time again. And because you happen to be of socioeconomic, low socioeconomic status or in, you know, stuck in poverty or, or whatever, you still have the option of change. I've seen it time and time again. And it's a question of how you go about it. The, the, the basis is establishing with the patient you know, what is possible? What is it that you want to happen? Mm -hmm. What matters to you? And then you work with it. Throughout my career, I didn't face a patient opposite me and put them into pigeonholes. You know, I think every, everybody uh, has that potential. And to, to say that they don't have agency or they don't have a willingness to change, I think is entirely wrong. So that's what kind of prompted me to, to respond, that uh, lifestyle medicine is not about privilege. It, you know, it really is not. And the people that need us most are the people that we need to reach. And uh, as lifestyle medicine and uh, uh, the sorts of stuff we do through motivational interviewing and so on and so forth, uh, we do reach them, and especially through group consultation. So I think that that, you know, that title, the title was a thing that sparked off a slight debate uh, that even got as far as the British Medical Journal. So I think, and also into the main press. Mm -hmm. uh, so I felt I needed to put something out there to, to suggest that maybe people have misunderstood what uh, all this is about. We can't change the, the term lifestyle medicine. I mean, that's there. Um, and uh, it may not be the per perfect way to describe what we do. But lifestyle is not a dirty word. Lifestyle is not uh, the kind of couch you have in your living room. And if you tack medicine onto it, it becomes quite obvious that it's related to medical outcomes. Mm. As much as we want to demedicalize, we're kind of stuck with these two words. And it's beginning to make sense to a lot of people. I speak to people every day. So that, that, that's what prompted it. And uh, yeah, I hope it helped to clear the air a bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree because what I'm looking forward to is empowering patients and empowering people and giving them the information and assisting them. The main thing that bothers me when people sort of place blame because it should be more about showing that there are opportunities to change for healthy behaviour without being judgmental. For example, there is a lot of weight stigma and you know how people deal with overweight patients is a lot of the time very wrong in my opinion and there's a sort of the trade-off between you know empowering them to make healthier behaviors healthier choices and without without guilting them for things that they have done in the past that may have contributed um so i don't know if you have any thoughts yeah, on how yeah, how those yeah. go hand in hand well, well i think that uh, in general practice we were perhaps slightly better at handling that sort of stuff mm. you know that uh, we, we kind of motivational interviewing, if you like, and using uh, you know, the trans-theoretical model of change and, yeah. and uh, the stages of change modeling, for example. Um, you know, we, we kind of fell into it because we saw that that's what worked. Um, distinguished us in some ways from uh, the secondary care sector. Mm. Um, I mean, the great thing, of course, is that that's beginning to you know, blur a bit because of 
the interest in lifestyle medicine and this notion of changing. So it's, it's how you approach things that really matters. And Absolutely. the idea that, you know, as a, as, a, as a doctor, that I should be saying, listen, mate, you've got to better, you should do better stop smoking. Look, if you don't stop smoking, this is that's going to happen. That's going to happen. You know, it doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> it really doesn't. Uh, so that you have to establish, well, what is it that you want to change? How, would you, how do you want to be? And, and make them do the work. And then you facilitate it. I see doctors, in my view, should be architects of change. Mm. You know, they should be architects of choice. The days of um, paternalism are long gone. If we come at it with a different approach, that we're there to, to have the knowledge, if you like, as best we can, but have the skills to impart it, and then having the skill to help people change. Now, that's, you know, that's a whole... That, you know, that's a big, th- big undertaking yeah. in 10 minutes, I have to say, in general practice. Um, but it is, it is possible to start the conversation. Mm. And uh, the, the beauty about general practice, for example, is that that conversation can be had serially, whereas in, uh, clearly in secondary care, you've only got one bite at the cherry, so to speak, and uh, it's less easy. Mm. But on the other hand, we need to change the way we think. If we change the way we think, if we, um, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I think as I went into medicine, uh, with the intention of doing good, and I haven't yet met, I've not yet met a doctor who didn't think the same. Mm-hmm. So, if that is the case, you know, what is the block for people taking on lifestyle medicine as mainstream? It's something that we should all do. Mm. Uh, at the top of every guideline that you choose to look at, about sign or nice, it's tell us you know, deal with lifestyle issues. But for one reason or another, and I think largely because of lack of confidence, lack of competence perhaps lack of time, people don't do it. So what we are doing in the lifestyle medicine world is giving people that confidence mm. and the competence uh, to, to deal with these issues. And as a consequence, both the practitioners and patients are much, much happier. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about that. So I, I, I think I'm, I'm rambling. So bring me back, bring me back. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm actually glad you mentioned the, the contrast between general practice and secondary care because that was something I wanted to ask as well. Um, from what I've seen in the lifestyle medicine movement, GPs seem to be quite overrepresented. And I don't know if that's because of the, I mean, they meet everyone in terms of patients and they deal with a lot of chronic disease. I mean, I personally think mm. that, like you say, lifestyle medicine should really be used everywhere. There's a role for it in all branches of medicine. And yeah, I was just wondering if uh, you too think that uh, all healthcare practitioners should be caring equally about lifestyle medicine, or if perhaps there is more of a role for it in general practice. I think you're absolutely right, Linda. The, the, the whole purpose of our society is, of course, to have this broad spread. And uh, although it, we're maybe seemingly top-heavy heavy with GPs, and, and it's certainly the case at trustee level, uh, in terms of numbers joining, the GPs are actually in a minority now, mm. uh, not just across the board in the society, but the number of people sitting uh, exam, for example, I would say is about 60% GPs. Uh, so there's a large number of people, especially in secondary care, who are joining up and getting it. Now, I've got, I've got some very interesting thing happened today that uh, a gentleman uh, I joined today who is a hepatologist. Okay. And uh, he, he said, uh, he, he wrote that uh, um, there's a thing called uh, l- lifestyle-related uh, liver disease now, yeah. or lifestyle-associated liver disease, I think it is. And uh, I was thinking, well, wow, uh, I'd never heard of that. 
that's good. But then he's using the word lifestyle, which everybody else seems to find objectionable. Mm. And it's finding its way into mainstream medicine. So here's a hepatologist who recognizes that 90% of what goes wrong with the liver is lifestyle related. Mm. And so he's get, got the message. We've got to deal with this further up the chain. We don't want to wait until people are going to liver failure. Mm. So I think it's a very good example uh, of somebody within the secondary care sector who has come to the conclusion through experience. And I've got more and more people like them. Uh, so I think that it is happening. And uh, where it should happen is at the beginning. So during your uh, your medical early career in medicine as a student, you should be exposed to all of this. Mm. And you should be debating it, and learning about it, and challenging your teachers. You know, it, it's, it should be mainstream. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, some universities are rather more open to it than others. Mm. Um, and at medical schools and, and it's beginning to come into the curriculum which is uh, long overdue lifestyle medicine or lifestyle interventions rather are often mentioned as a first line approach to most diseases that we talk about so heart disease diabetes but we're never really taught much about how to counsel patients on it and what we should recommend and then when you, for yourself, go and find out about all these amazing anecdotes and then find the research too, but then there's all this anger disappointment as well at the fact, or perhaps anger is a bit strong, but frustration that it's left out despite being so powerful and often with no side effects as well compared to, you know, medication. Um, so definitely, I mean, I'm yeah. going to start final year now, so it's a bit late for me to get anything from medical school from it, but I do hope that it will enter a curriculum more and more. My generation has made a complete mess of things, mm-hmm. so uh, we depend on you guys to, 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 to clear it up. It's terrible that your generation has got all these things to clear up. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, no, you're absolutely right. I think it's something that uh, it should be, and is mainstream, and there's nothing nothing controversial about it, actually. Mm. I mean, as, as it's often said, you know, Hippocrates was talking about this two and a half thousand years ago, and uh, uh, naturally, uh, you know, there's been we've been very slow, slow to, to catch up. And uh, in my own case, I mean, I've had 30 years of loneliness, but uh, now it's wonderful just to have all these people who, who understand it mm-hmm. and uh, want to do it. And the fact that they're climbing on board, and so people uh, are, and 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 patients are becoming increasingly expecting it and, and happy to, to to recognize that there are other ways other than the pharmaceutical route to to dealing with their 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 illnesses. Uh, in my recent interview with Professor Rob Thomas from Cambridge, uh, he was uh, explaining that uh, he this is his approach. You know, he, he gives options. Uh, and uh, people are increasingly recognizing that, well, actually, I don't want to have chemotherapy or I don't want to have radiotherapy or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to try what you're suggesting as first line. So I think that uh, gradually the public is beginning to be weaned off the biomedical model mm. and beginning to realize that there is another model, the biopsychosocial model is, is one that comes more naturally uh, and is, is the whole thing is much more intuitive as a human being. Uh, and this is, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's something that uh, should be front and center of, of how we practice. And just to get back to the Hippocratic Oath and, and our uh, ethical baseline and framework, doing good and then followed by doing no harm are hugely important and yet i was shocked to learn uh, towards the end of my career how much harm i had inadvertently been doing to my Mm. patients because of the uh, effect of the pharmaceutical industry so 
I put it this way, there's plenty of evidence behind a lifetime medicine. It's safe ground, it is effective, and both you and the patient can have a good laugh over it. And what better medicine is there than laughter? Mm, for sure. Yes, I'm a bit curious as well. You just mentioned there, um, what was your own journey to the discovery of lifestyle medicine? And, you know, not having been taught about it in medical school, how did you find out about it? Yes. Uh, well, um, I'll try to be reasonably succinct. I think lifestyle medicine is a relatively new concept. Sorry, rather new title. The concept, of course, has been around for a long time. Yep. And uh, mine was just simply understanding uh, from a very early stage, you know, even before I went to university, that prevention was better than cure. And this is something that my grandparents kept on telling me. So I thought, well, that, yeah, that's, that must be the case. Yeah. Quite specifically, say a stitch in time saves nine. You know, mm. so I think that, um, that that kind of stuck. But I was very also struck during my medical education that prevention wasn't on the, any agenda at all ever. And so it wasn't uh, until I became a principal in general practice that I had the the power, if you like, to begin to introduce it into my practice. But in those days, we did five minute medicine. Now that's not. You know, you can't do very much in five minutes. I know, yeah. <laughs> I actually set up a separate clinic, which I called the Fitness Assessment Clinic, and also set up a, a lifestyle active management program you know, for people with chronic disease. And uh, I like acronyms, so it was called LAMP. And I uh, got my nurse to get involved as well. But I began to realize that actually, uh, you know, it'd probably be better to do this sort of stuff in groups. Um, and that's where my local charity was born 29 years ago. I couldn't do it in the context of the NHS. So I had to go outside the NHS to create this charity. And uh, what that provides is physical activity, uh, social support and relaxation to people with chronic conditions. And for the previous 29 years, uh, we had 16 or 17 classes every week around the county. Uh, which came to a very sudden juddering stop because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, the whole principle, if you like, has been with me for an awful long time. Uh, when it came to lifestyle medicine, uh, it was actually a, um, an article written by the editor of the British Medical Journal, Fiona Godley, some years ago. Her editorial mentioned lifestyle medicine for the first time. And it was because of a book written by somebody who has now become a friend, uh, Professor Gary Egger. Yeah. And uh, he had written a book about lifestyle medicine, and he reckoned, Fiona Godley recommended every doctor in the land to read it. And that was my first introduction both to lifestyle medicine and him. And it happened at the time when I was setting up a centre, a lifestyle medicine centre, uh, out in East Lothian near Edinburgh. It was a wonderful way to work for 15 months, but then I ran out of money because it wasn't in the NHS. And that said, well, how do I get all this into the National Health Service? Because that's where it naturally belongs. And that's why the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine was born and why I adopted this group consultation approach as being the principal way in to the NHS. And I'm pleased to say that it's embedded really in the NHS, mainly in England, not much in Scotland. Um, and it's a great way, in my view, of delivering care uh, and lifestyle medicine in particular. So the more people we get trained in it, uh, the better the outcomes will be, I'm quite convinced. So that, that's been the sort of root map, if you like, mm -hmm. compressed over from 40 years into a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you. 
this podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School. I'd like to ask my guests um, if they had an opportunity to influence medical curricula, what would be one area of focus that you would perhaps like all doctors to know that doesn't really seem to be something that's taught today? Well, I don't know what's taught today. I was taught a long time ago, <laughs> but uh, I think that the important thing is is that uh, to, to treat people as people mm-hmm. and not as patients. And uh, I, I, like, I, like, I don't like to pigeonhole people in any way, even with a diagnosis, diagnostic labels. They're not a diagnostic label. They're a, they're a person who happen maybe to have conditions and often multiple conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that would be my plea really, is that see people as people, not as patients. Uh, the problem, I suppose, is this, uh, the tendency to specialization and subspecialization and super specialization. Uh, please, everyone who gets trained, remember to deal holistically with the person in front of you and don't lose that, that skill just because you happen to have a special interest in one area mm-hmm. or special expertise in one area. So that would what I would like uh, people to, to come out of, of uh, medical school being confident that they can deal with people as people and not as patients. Yeah, now that you say that, often the patient just becomes the disease in discussions. Of course, you know, you need yes. to bring up the disease and when you're talking about treatment and so on. But a lot of the time, definitely they are stripped a bit of their humanity just by doing that, which is a shame. Yes, indeed. Yes. You, you have to be on the receiving end, too, mm. to better understand what it feels like. You mentioned being dehumanized. I think that uh, your dignity, if you like, is just sort of stripped away from you when you step into to a hospital. I think that's being reinstated. Uh, it's an approach that matters. It's how we think as uh, doctors that, that makes such a difference. Um, and engaging with patients is not hard if you try to. I think that the uh, that skill, if you like, is something that perhaps may not be taught as well as it should have should be certainly not my day i can't speak for now mm. so i think that engaging with patients is so important and general practice in particular makes it easier i think because we're forced to large, largely um, but in, in secondary care it's beginning to happen a lot more as well and i think that uh, you know our, our medical colleagues have got a lot to be proud of um, but i think they should uh, also maybe stop to think sometimes well could i have done that in a different way and had a different or better outcome so mm-hmm. i think that we should always doubt a little bit, question what we do slightly more uh, and make sure that we're dealing with what matters to patients rather than what matters to us. Absolutely. There are some rumours of a lifestyle medicine curriculum eventually. Is that something you can talk about? or? There are interested parties in various medical schools around the place mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who are showing interest in introducing perhaps something into the fourth year. Okay. So uh, that's uh, in Cambridge, for example, uh, I know that uh, they were certainly very keen. I went down there and they were very keen. It, it really depends on the curricular dean in many ways. It's still very early days, Linda, but yeah. it's not given the prominence it should be. No. Um, and uh, it's going to probably be left to post-graduation to really pick up the, the skills and knowledge that you, you need. So you can have that confidence and competence to practice in that kind of style and that kind of approach. Mm. Yeah, I saw someone, um, a doctor as well, at one point mention how he thought there was a lot of criticism in terms of people saying, oh, doctors don't learn anything about nutrition at medical school and so on, which 
um, to a certain level is true, but he was also arguing that we are equipped with a lot of tools to interpret the science and to understand it, even if we aren't taught it in medical school to be able to teach it to ourselves and or understand it later as well. But it really should be something that is in focus earlier too. In terms of incorporating lifestyle medicine into a medical school curriculum, what do you think that ideally would look like? I mean, I personally think that the science is fairly straightforward in terms of what's beneficial. Do you think ideally those things should be taught or should it be more about the general underlying principles and how to counsel patients? You'll be surprised to hear me say that uh, all of the above. You know, I think that it is too simplistic to, to uh, it's too reductionist to get simply down to nutrition, over mm. which many people disagree, I have to say. Uh, physical activity, there's more agreement and plenty, plenty of evidence. Mm-hmm. But the fundamentals of health behavior change. I'm not sure that that's really taught. But ultimately, that is fundamental. Mm-hmm. You know, health you know, behavior change is fundamental. Nutrition science, physical activity science, sleep health science, uh, emotional mental well-being, uh, connectedness, positive psychology. You know, all of these things are just as important if not more so than nutrition and physical activity. So it, it has to be seen as a package. Mm. I think the whole thing has to be seen um, as a package. And I suspect that's not going to be the case, that people will just pick out certain elements mm. and go with what they think is popular, like nutrition, yeah. for example, uh, and physical activity, which are the sort of low-hanging fruit. Uh, but I think that uh, without the rest, uh, I'm not sure how useful it is. Mm. You know, health and health behavior are... are factors of society and culture you know it's not just our individual beliefs and attitudes you know, mm-hmm. and, and of course the environmental impact of you know both the built and natural uh, are, are all factors and, and these are you know the upstream causes this is fundamental to lifestyle medicine and uh, somebody needs to be saying it before they give their lecture on nutrition yeah. <laughs> they should they should make plain that it's only one little piece of the jigsaw no i i definitely think that there is a lack of interest in well, I suppose public health and the, the sort of sociology side of it and psychology and it's really more people kind of looking for the quick fixes in terms of nutrition and exercise and maybe neglecting all of the you know mental work that often needs to be put in in the sleep um, and it, I just think it's a bit difficult to interest people in it and I'm not sure what the best way to do it is because we definitely have had um, lectures about health inequalities and um, probably not enough of them but in first year we do get a little bit about it i don't know if it's something that perhaps should be introduced more in clinical years when you actually see patients more and see the impact i know it's hard but i think one of the messages has to be uh, that uh, in terms of our impact as medics on the outcome the health outcomes of our patients it's very small you know we, mm. we you know we should be put firmly in our place we're, we 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 are on a pedestal still and we shouldn't be but because we're trusted incidentally people take their medicines when they're prescribed if they knew half of what uh, we knew about the medication they would never touch it <laughs> if we say 10% uh, that's that's the impact we have as in the medical profession on health outcomes you know it's a very small amount yeah. i think that if people understand that maybe they'll be more interested then in looking at well what else uh, will reflect the health of my patients mm. and shouldn't I be actually interested in that yeah <laughs> uh, I mean clearly the the difference between the the, uh, the, the the in terms of earning income in any country the difference between the top earners and the lowest earner 
the, the narrower that is, the healthier people are as a population. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. You know, if we really want to address problems uh, downstream, we have to look upstream. Mm. You know, no question about that. And it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's an age-old question. You know, the medics say, oh, that's nothing to do with us. Well, I think it should be. You know, if, if you took on medicine to do good, as I say, then you should be able to look at all the reasons people are unhealthy and do your damnedest at whatever level to change it and, and, and for the better. You know, so it's very easy to, to get bogged down in the diagnostic and disease end of the spectrum. If that's where you want to be, that's fine. Uh, but uh, don't stop everybody else from being further along the spectrum and including wellness into the spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah, and even zooming a bit further out, there's more talk I find nowadays as well about um, human health and planetary health and the intersection with climate change and all of that, which is something that I, you know, a couple of years back probably wouldn't have thought has anything at all to do with human health. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, uh, not many people know that... Uh, uh, you know, lung disease uh, is, is due to pollution, effectively. Mm. Uh, and uh, while we tinker around trying to find things that to, you know, deal with the symptom, what are we doing about the pollution that's causing it? Uh, mm. The same with on the nutrition side, as, as you know, I think it's a, it's a processed food that's a problem. Uh, but what are we doing about it? you have any social media channels or any recommendations in general for people that want to learn a bit more and stay up to date yeah i, I think that uh, you should do what fiona godley exhorted everybody to do back in the day and that is uh, try to get hold of uh, gary egger's third edition lifestyle in environment and preventive medicine and health and disease mm-hmm. he, he writes well he's a very engaging chap uh, you won't necessarily agree with everything in it but if you want to have that as your go-to text, then that will probably then lead you into the areas that particularly interest you. Uh, and I would strongly recommend that uh, that's what you do. Quite apart from, of course, be part of Edinburgh University Lifestyle Medicine Society <laughs> and, 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 and also participate in lifestyle medicine. And if I want to be you know, a stirrer, um, there's another book that you could read. Uh, it's called Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime. Uh, by somebody called Peter Goethe. He was head of the Caution Collaboration. Um, and it's, it's how Big Pharma has corrupted healthcare. That is a, an arresting book. And for somebody like me at the end of my career to be reading that, I was squirming in my seat. Mm. So I think it's, it's worth maybe having a look at that early on in your career. And uh, it might help to set the course that you go on. Great. Thank you so much. I'll be sure to include the information for that. And uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for being part of that episode today. Not at all, Linda, and uh, delighted that you've got a passion for this and uh, I hope you have it lifelong. And that's it. Thank you so much for staying until the end. Shout out to you. Don't forget to follow me at Woodlands on social media where I'll be posting updates about when you can expect the next episode as well as checking out the show notes on my website lindadoes.com. Subscribe if you did enjoy what you heard today. There is much more to come from a wide range of topics. Please also do share this podcast with your friends and family and anyone that you think might enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. 